0: We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for air.
1: Okay, ladies. I have an activity for us to do today. We're going to be talking about something called ambivalence and what it has to do with denial. So, if you'll just oblige me and if you ladies would just throw out a few examples. We're going to go with like five or six examples that you need motivation in order to change. I'll get us started off. And my first example would be in order to change my job, I need motivation, right? I need some, some form of motivation in order to change my job. Cause if I'm comfortable working there, why would I change my job? So give me a couple of other examples.
2: I need motivation to eat vegetables.
3: okay what else I need motivation to make sure I'm not in doing mode what's that mean I mean that sometimes I actually need to stop doing and be consciously making a choice not to do things
1: okay what else I need motivation to get healthy lose a little weight and exercise Mm
3: -hmm.
1: well
2: that about covers it
3: yeah really (laughs) I need motivation to go to bed earlier.
1: Yeah. I need motivation to complete big projects in my house.
2: Ah, or big work projects, the procrastinator in me.
3: All right. I have a big one. Okay. Which is okay. I need motivation to not be on my devices.
1: Ooh. Okay. <laughs> yep. In the modern world, I bet you that's a big one, right? I know I'm not alone on that one. Yep. Okay, so we've got plenty of examples. I'm gonna take one of our examples of uh, something that we need motivation in order to change. And I'd like to ask you a few questions. So let's take the exercise, diet, lose weight kind of thing, right? Where we're eating healthy and we're exercising. I want you to give me a a few motivators, those things that would motivate you to diet, exercise, and lose a little bit of weight.
2: This coat that doesn't quite fit.
3: Yeah, okay, what else? Well, for me, it's that my kid is fairly young and I would like to be alive for her you know, later years. Yep, so like health reasons. Yes.
2: Right, so it's the coat and long-term health for, for <laughs> Kayla, for her child. I, I see we're running the gamut. <laughs> Yeah,
1: or it could be, you know, like I went in and tried my summer clothes on and they're feeling a little tight. Or I went to the doctor's and the doctor said, Ooh, you're pre diabetic. Right. We need to get you healthy. Great. We've got a list of things that might motivate us. Now I want a list of things that might demotivate us from losing weight, exercising, and getting healthy. Like, for example, that incredibly delicious chocolate cake that's sitting on my counter right now after I tried the clothes on. You know what? I can diet and exercise later. I'm eating that chocolate cake.
3: I think a motivator is when it feels like it's hard to do to make that change. Like, it could be that the path of least resistance is walking into the pantry and just standing there as I am wont to do in the middle of the night. So like, it's an old, old habit and changing any kind of habits is really, really not easy. And it's the default when I'm tired or I'm lonely or I'm bored or I'm happy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense to me, right? You're sitting there watching TV, you're bored, you go to the cabinet. Ah, there's some popcorn here. Mm. Mm. Mm." I forgot about my summer clothes.
2: Yeah. And and the weather is terrible. It's hard to imagine going out there for a good long walk, like I was doing.
1: Or maybe the doctor telling me that I'm overweight actually demotivated me, Right, didn't make me feel good about myself. And so I'm not feeling all that motivated to do what the doctor said. Okay, great. So let's just stop here and pause for a moment. How often when there is some form of motivation for you to change. Do you just go out and change? Like how many times have you tried on those summer clothes, found them to be a little too tight and you said, that's it right now, right here in this moment, I am exercising and I am dieting. Or does it take a little bit of time, maybe some prep time or maybe some, you know, well, what kind of a diet am I going to use? What kind of exercise am I going to be involved in.
2: I feel like there's an immediate, I gotta, and that fills me with an overwhelming shame because I'm pretty sure I'm not gotta, going to gotta in the next 10 minutes. And then the whole thing's gonna sort of pass by. And so it's very unlikely that I'm gonna make a big solid change in that moment.
3: I don't do straight line changes. I'm more like I make a change and then I fall backwards and make a change and fall backwards. And, you know, the only way that I have ever been able to change any kind of behavior long term is by staying with it, even though I fall backwards, you know, like the falling backwards is totally a part of my thing.
1: It's kind of like the job thing, right? Like, oh, my boss treated me awful. I got to go find another job. That means I got to pull up my resume and I got to update it. And I got to ask people if there'll be references for me. Uh, This is going to be a while. So I might not make the job change in the moment. I might kind of waver back and forth. But what we're talking about is something called ambivalence. And ambivalence is when we hold two opposing views in our minds and emotionally at the same time. And ambivalence is actually a human characteristic that everybody experiences ambivalence all of the time. So you can want to diet or you can, you can have thoughts of I need to, I've got to do this and you can have, yeah, but I'm not feeling it right now. And you know, it's going to take me a little while all at the same time. I picture it as having a little angel and a little devil on my shoulder, and they're talking to me all the time. And the angel is like, yeah, you need to get healthy. And the devil's like, yeah, but that chocolate cake or a wonderful piece of baklava, because if anybody knows you, Laurie, baklava is your favorite pastry. Go ahead and eat it. So a few things to understand about ambivalence is that you can have two opposing views at the same time. Everybody experiences it. So, this means that our loved ones with substance use disorder also experience ambivalence. The problem is there's a few things with ambivalence. The problem is when we're experiencing ambivalence, we're very sensitive to other people's response to our ambivalence. So, like, Just thinking of trying on the clothes, if my husband walks in and goes, ooh, your rear end looks big, I'm going to be sensitive to that and I'm going to respond to that. But if my husband walks in and he says something like, oh, wow, you're pulling out the summer clothes, looking good, I'm going to respond and be sensitive to that as well. So it's important to understand that our loved ones are experiencing that, and oftentimes, we only want recognize one of those thoughts that are going on in their head. We focus on the one aspect of ambivalence, and it happens to be which one? The angel or the devil?
2: Oh, the family member hears the devil, and rarely is the angel spoken even, right? I imagine it's you have to work to get the angel to speak.
1: Yes, so... So that's what a lot of the time when we are observing our loved one or interacting with our loved one, oftentimes what's standing in front of us is ambivalence. They have conflicting thoughts. They have thoughts of, I don't want to do this. I do want to do this all at the same time. And what we tend to see, the louder... The louder version, especially when it when in active addiction, of course, is that little devil saying, do it, do it, do it. And we need to, or we, we don't need to, but if we can calm it down a little bit or calm ourselves down a little bit, we might be able to see a little bit of that angel in there. Now, it's important to understand, like, why do we need to understand what ambivalence is? Well, there's a few things about ambivalence. It's important to understand that the opposing views are competing with one another. So the angel and the devil are competing with one another. And anytime we introduce new thoughts or new ideas, they're still competing with one another. They are not replacing each other. So the ambivalence doesn't go away. The little devil on the shoulder, just because the angel gets louder, the little devil is still there and is still talking to your loved one is still talking in your ear. It doesn't go away. And that's a really important piece. Another thing to think about why it's important to understand ambivalence is because normalizing it helps. Normalizing that your loved one is experiencing ambivalence and it's actually a normal characteristic. It is a human characteristic for them to experience So when they're going back and forth, and this is something that we might be able to hear it a little bit more. And this is one of the things that craft points out to us when we are looking for wishes and dips. That's what we're listening for. We're listening for the angel and the devil, particularly the angel, because when we hear a wish or a dip, that's the angel going, you don't want to do this anymore you want something better, you don't want to go to jail for selling drugs, or you want to stop using this substance, and you want to stop hurting your family members, or you want to stop lying. And then the devil perks up again and says, well, you know, I know how to make you feel better.
3: Yeah, and I just want to be clear that the devil and angel analysis that you're using the the this metaphor, it's that when you're saying you, it's actually I because they're both parts of ourselves. And I think that what really we need to be you know, grabbing onto here is that all of us have different parts of ourselves that have different intentions, different desires, different needs. And it's not that we're schizophrenic, although I have to talk to people about this all the time. It's not that you have multiple personality disorder, but we're complex beings that have different aspects of ourselves. And there's many, many, many different kinds of therapy that approach life in that way, whether it's internal family systems or... There's a lot. I'm not even going to begin to mention it, but it's about different parts of ourselves have more of a voice at various moments. And so what happens is that we often identify ourselves and act in a way of the most old and familiar voice that we've been listening to we have habits, we have patterns, we keep doing it. And when we are uncomfortable with what that part of ourselves is doing, we have this other voice, which in this case we're calling the angel, that says, there's gotta be a better way to do this. This, There's more out there, I want more. And so there's a struggle that begins because you're not only going against this negative voice, you're going against habit, okay? And that's what makes it really ambivalent. And I'm gonna superimpose this other part of it, which is that, the same way we're looking at our loved ones and their behavior and their habits and their desire to change or not change, we are doing the exact same thing. Okay. So what we're asking you with craft is, okay, can you change how you interact with your loved one? And it's like, if we could do that easily, everybody be like, yes, sure. I'm going to, I'm gonna communicate better. I'm gonna listen. I'm not gonna fix things. I'm not gonna give advice. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna have treatment list available, but I'm not just gonna be spitting it out there every time I get anxious. So we're asking monumental change here. How do you pause, step back, calm yourself down? And I know last on the list, take care of yourself, which so many of the people that we're talking to do not have on their list. So we're asking you to do the same thing that you're asking your loved one to do, which is look at what's healthier, what's more functional, what's actually more connecting and more gives you more meaning in life and allows you to live a healthier lifestyle for yourself and with other people. And so we're doing this parallel process. And of course, it's kind of like saying, okay, my loved one just called up and they're in a crisis. So my automatic habit is going to be, I'm going to take care of that, whatever it is. Send them money, rescue, fix them, give them advice. And we're asking you to slow it down and say, okay, can you say no? Can you not respond? Can you have a more thoughtful response that's not addressing the problem itself? And you're going to feel ambivalent about it.
1: The other thing about ambivalence is we don't recognize it in our loved ones. We only see this one dimension and and that would be the devil on the shoulder. So once you start to understand ambivalence and understand that it's a a characteristic, a human characteristic, you can start to see, oh, maybe there is an angel on my loved one's shoulder. And we said previously that we are sensitive when we are in an ambivalent state, right? When we're Kind of showing that ambivalence, we're sensitive to other people's responses. So if we can, if we can start to see the angel, which to me is a wish or a dip, we can tap into that wish or that dip, or we can tap into that voice and say, hey, tell me more about that. I want to hear more. What are your thoughts on that? And start to focus a lot more on the angel. And less on the devil, which again doesn't mean our loved ones aren't going to go out and use or isn't going to go and drink after this conversation. It doesn't mean that. All it means is it's good for us and it's good for the loved one. But we're starting to focus on the positive, the angel that's sitting on your loved one's shoulder. And we're starting to recognize that this person is a human being. They're not just their illness, they're not just. They're not necessarily making making these choices or, or going out to do these things in order to hurt you. There's something else, something a lot more complex going on inside of them. That's right. And this brings me to our other kind of, we were talking about this, ambivalence is what I believe brings us to denial. Why we all often say that people are in denial. And I say it's because we're only recognizing the little devil standing on the shoulder. And I strongly believe that once you understand ambivalence, you understand that denial doesn't actually it, it doesn't actually exist. And the reason why I say this is because maybe the devil that the the devil is the loudest right now but that there is back and forth going on inside of your loved one's mind about how to handle situations, even substance use all the time. It's happening all the time. It's just right now that devil is a little bit on the loud, it's on the louder side. So your loved one isn't in denial. They may be denying it to you verbally. They may be saying, I don't have a problem but I can, almost, I can almost guarantee you, they know they have a problem. Or if someone really doesn't believe that they have a problem, then it's not a problem for them. It may be a problem for you, but that doesn't put them in denial. It doesn't mean that they're in denial. They just don't see it as a problem for
2: them. Does that make sense? It may, It makes a lot of sense. For me, this conversation is so important for families to hear because we think our loved ones are manipulating or are lying all the time or you know they rarely speak the truth but the truth for us is only this good angel that maybe you know tiny tiny bit of the time shows itself the rest of the time we feel like our loved ones are leading a secret life and aren't being honest with us and i just want to uncover that some and show the inner complexity of what it's like to to be somebody with addiction and and to find that there is this good and bad you know it's it's hard not to have these metaphors of judgment but you know this positive and negative force that's constantly in existing within and and fueling fueling this ambivalence it looks like ambivalence to to a family member and so what can we do is once we see the good side, the the side, we want to see some change in, you know, as family members, we can very practically put things in front of our loved ones that encourages that change, that shapes that change. Uh, Would it help if I if we got you some new rubber boots that didn't have holes in them? Would you walk the dog if if we could do that? You know, would I walk the dog if my shoes didn't have holes in them? Yes. So I would buy myself some shoes, you know, so whatever it is, just this awareness that there's change inside our loved one and these very small things that we might be able to do to encourage it to come forward.
3: Yeah. And, and what I would add is that since we're talking about ambivalence and denial, the reason that people use substances is because it helps them. Okay. It is a twisted way of treating a mental health issue. It is a twisted way of feeling connected to a group of people. Sometimes it is a twisted way to calm your system down temporarily, but nobody would be doing this if it didn't work. Okay. Nobody. The problem is there's this like pathway where it gets to the point when, whoa, it's really not working and the unintended consequences keep getting larger and larger with that. But there's ambivalence with that as well. And that's what I want to point out, that when we're, when we're looking to people to, to reduce or stop using what they're using, that's their ambivalence. It's like, but then what? What am I going to feel like? What's going to happen to me? And we won't even talk about withdrawal. And the reason that most people want to avoid, that's terrible. You know, so when you stop using substances, what winds up happening is that there's this whole backlash of like, oh, my God, I have feelings. Oh, my God, I can't handle life. Oh my God, there's no way to escape. And the physiological sensation. So that's ambivalent right there unto itself. And it's not about denial when people are not stopping. It's that they are weighing their options and the the option of using looks preferable to them than not using.
1: Right, it's easy. It's the quick fix. You feel better quickly. It makes total sense to me. And also, I think it's really important when, when we often, and when I say we, I mean family members, allies, when we accuse somebody of lying or the lying, the lies are coming at us, I really question how much of the truth do I really want to know? Because if my loved one was to tell me the truth, how accepting would I be of it, which is the whole reason why they're not telling me the truth, because that's probably what's going on inside of their mind. If I tell you the truth, you're gonna freak out. You're gonna be a mess. And I just think about it in terms of how much do I really want to know? And I think about it like, what if I, what if I was using heroin and my mom or dad came to me and said, Are you using heroin? What would I say? I can tell you right now immediately, I would lie and I would say, no, I'm not. And a lot of it has to do with I can't face you with the fact that I'm using heroin and I'm not everybody. I want everybody to know that I'm not, (laughs) (laughs) but I've put myself in that spot and thought about it. And it's like, no, I wouldn't tell you the truth. I wouldn't tell anybody the truth unless it was someone else that uh, maybe I was using with who would understand.
2: And that is what we teach families to do with craft is to be that person that understands and that you can tell this stuff too. And that is the way you engage them, you, you engage someone into further help, is to have them come to you, be willing to say, it hurts, I need help, and to have you ready with the help, whatever it is. And it's it does happen, and it happens pretty quickly. I, I hear this in our, with our families a lot, that a, a few changes in the communication, just the most basic, communication skill building that we teach provides a real opening for the loved one to change the way they're communicating. And our families overwhelmingly tell us that our help in teaching them these communication skills is overwhelmingly help them change the way they interact with their loved ones so that's the magic bit of craft. It's so undervalued, under poorly understood, perhaps that it's just in those moments that you create this whole new world with your loved one. Well,
1: great conversation today. I'm glad you ladies indulged me and and went with my little activity. Kayla, could you give us a quick summary? And we'll just talk about the 10 day challenge to close out.
3: I just believe that what we're talking about is everything is complicated. And instead of assuming people are lying or withholding information from you or they are in denial, which means that they don't see or understand what's going on, we don't presume that. We believe that people have awareness and that whether you're the person who's using substances or you're their family member, you are quite aware of what's going on, even if you don't want to know. And what we're talking about is once we see things as complicated, which is what ambivalence is, is that you're basically having this struggle between two different orientations and that it takes a while to move through that. And so being patient with that process, having awareness that that's what's going on with yourself and your loved one makes a really big difference.
1: Awesome. Thank you. And I want to let our listeners know that We are running a 10-day challenge on the Allies in Recovery website. If you become a member and you complete half of the modules, the e-learning modules, which are videos and and worksheets that you can do uh, documents right on the website, you complete half of them in 10 days, you get a one-day training, which is worth about $250 for free. So check it out. Thank you,
2: ladies. Thank you.
0: and our production team.